Well, it's Mother's Day, and um, the title of this sermon is uh, The Rock of Ages, or Rock of Ages. Um, and all I'm going to say about mothers is, you rock. That's the end of the Mother's Day message. So we're, we're going to get back into um, Christ in the Old Testament. Last week, we looked at, uh, last week's message was entitled, Fire on the Mountain. And uh, that sounds really awesome, fire on the mountain. Uh, we, we saw how Yahweh came down onto the mountain and gave Moses some uh, instructions, some, some commandments. And the, the rule was that Moses was allowed to come up and Aaron and the Levites or the elders of Israel, they were able to come up kind of close. But everybody else, including the sheep and the goats and the cattle and, and all the rest of the people, weren't allowed to even come close to the mountain at all, or else they would be burned up, and that's, uh, that's a very terrifying thing. We learn that God is holy, and in the midst of God showing himself to Moses, God shows Moses a pattern of the heavenly things. And we saw last week how um, biblical language and symbolism is cumulative. That means it, it builds. You can't just pick up the book of Revelation without reading the rest of the Bible and expect to get anything meaningful out of it. In fact, that's why we have so many weird eschatologies running around is people who are ignorant of what the Old Testament says, how it uses certain words and certain scenes, and they, they just think that the New Testament's all we need, and I can read the New Testament and read the read Revelation and get some sort of understanding, and, and they're just wrong. And we found out last week that uh, we saw how there was fire and smoke and uh, lightnings, thunderings, voices. There's a trumpet that shows up, and all of those things we saw how they show up in Ezekiel, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5, um, especially Revelation chapter 1 when when John is there, the revelator. He's he's about to be speaking with Jesus, and he says, I, hear, I heard a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And when he turns, after he hears that trumpet, he sees Yahweh, uh, Jesus, the God-man in, incarnate, and uh, it's an exact description uh, of Jesus's leadership and rule. And so that that scene in John 1 is built off of the, the scene in Daniel 4, where Daniel has a dream about the earthly kingdom or the earthly man versus the heavenly man. And so these things we see are, are important. You have to get the first initial formations of a particular word. And so we're going to see that again this week. Um, we also looked at this idea of... of we. Uh, of we as the church, uh, not just Grace Christian, but the church worldwide, we are a continuation of God's special dealings with the people on the earth. And time and again, we looked last week at certain phrases, especially Paul and Peter's use of the phrase kingdom of priest or a royal priesthood. Um, those, two, those two phrases directly point to what Moses had been told that God was going to do with the people of Israel. And so that is Peter and Paul's way of saying, you know, this new movement out of Judaism in following Jesus, this is what God is doing on the earth. And so um, we're going to look, we're going to see that come out a, a little bit again. Um, so the main idea last week was you can't just read Revelation without uh, having some understanding of Exodus, and you can't understand Exodus without Genesis. So you're just hopelessly lost. Just start at the beginning. You'll do much better. Um, if you just start at the beginning. So this week, we're going to look at a number of different themes. Uh, normally, I try to break them apart, but the way that this passage is structured, 
we're just going to kind of cycle back and forth between these themes. First theme is this idea of a tent and a tabernacle. We haven't really talked about this tent thing that Moses made um, and why it's important. We're going to look at uh, the incarnation, which is a very familiar topic for us here. We've talked about that before. The main theme of this series has really been the goodness of God in giving us pictures of Jesus beforehand so that we would know what to look for. Um, This idea of the rock that we saw two weeks ago, and uh, we're going to see it again. Um, The believer's union with Christ, that is who we are, how how are we connected to God, whether whether or not we have to strive to reconnect with God every every day or, or whether it's a secure thing. And then finally, the necessity of Christ. What does the Old Testament do when it shows us our failures? Um, we've been looking a lot at positive examples, but what do we do with the negative examples? Um, they point to a necessity of Jesus coming and, and living on our behalf. So we're going to just move through the passage. Um, Exodus 33, verses 7 Verse 7a, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. This is a Old Testament foreshadowing of a New Testament reality that God is going to be in the midst of his people. Earlier in Exodus, when when Yahweh is installing the Levites, when he's setting up this group of people that would worship him uh, and would serve in the tabernacle, um, he says that I will be in the midst of my people. Now, the problem is with this is the second part of the verse. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So this is a good thing. God's not that far away, but he's not exactly close. And in the midst of this, this picture is a reality where somebody has to leave their uh, dwelling. They have to, Yahweh is not just dwelling in their house. He's dwelling in a tent outside of the camp. And, um, that whole idea of outside of the camp takes on extremely rich meaning when we uh, get to Hebrews. At the rate we're going, that's probably like 25 years away. So um, suffice it to say, go read the book of Hebrews. It basically says that Jesus had to suffer outside the camp. He was crucified on the place of Golgotha, which was outside of Jerusalem. And going outside the camp means you're leaving leaving the protection of the people of God and their walls. And so if anyone wants to go visit Yahweh, they've got to get away from the rest of the people. Well, why is that? Well, we learned this when when Yahweh said to Moses, no one's allowed to come up to the mountain, lest God's wrath break out against the people and he, you know, consumes them. And so that's why the Levites are are around, they live around the tabernacle. They, they live around the tabernacle, not just to uh, keep the people of uh keep the tabernacle running, but rather to also keep the people from approaching the holy place without being atoned for. And so this idea is that we need a greater tabernacle. We need one who can come and allow God's presence to dwell in our midst without his wrath breaking out against us. So whenever Moses entered the tent, Exodus 33, 9, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit, this pillar of cloud uh, that the Israelites were, were led by. This pillar of cloud speaks of the Holy Spirit's activity. It's a cloud by day and a fire by night. This idea that Yahweh is coming in the midst of the cloud and he is literally filling or, or 
the, the pillar of cloud is coming to the tabernacle or the temple, and he's filling it. <clears throat> We're going to see this come up in uh, the next chapter in, in uh, 34, 5. This idea that the cloud is, is the, the Holy Spirit is further uh, highlighted in verse 10. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. People don't just like worship when there's cloud. Like we didn't, you know, I, I mean, you should. You should notice the glory of God and then worship. But most clouds that fly by, you don't see people just standing up and worshiping. Um, but this cloud, when it comes, people recognize the glory of God in the midst of it. And so there's this idea of God coming to be with his people. Yet this tabernacle is just a former, it's a shadow of who Jesus is. Um, this tent and tabernacle, this is, this is speaking of what Jesus would do. He would be God living in the midst of his people. In John 1, 14, it says, And the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. Now, this is probably the first time in, in a year or two that I've used the Young's literal, but this translation gets it better than every other translation, in my opinion. Uh, New American Standard says, dwelt, King James dwelt, he dwelt among us, and that's what it means to tabernacle. But John uses this word, he tabernacled, as in Jesus, he, John is directly using this idea of, of Yahweh coming and living in the midst of his people. And he's directly using that word to tie it to Jesus is the fulfillment of the foreshadowing of the tabernacle and the temple. And we beheld his glory, glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the midst of this tent and tabernacle idea, the believer has a firm position with Jesus. And this is foreshadowed by Moses. In Exodus 33:11a, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. In John 15, 15, Jesus is, is on his way out, so to speak. And he's telling his disciples, the, you know, the 12 plus whoever was with them, uh, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know anything or does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So in this idea that Moses is this one man that God had chosen to come and speak to him in a face-to-face -face way, yet this is what has happened through the work and person and work of Jesus is that we now are, we have friendship with God. We don't have to uh, literally ascend the mountain just to speak to him. And so this idea begins to emerge in this passage. We're seeing this concept of, of the believer's union with Christ. The chapter earlier, John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. The believer does not move in and out of Christ as Moses had to move in and out of the tabernacle. It said that when anyone would seek the Lord, they had to leave the camp and go out to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, and they had to uh, they had to stop what they were doing. They they couldn't be in the moment of their life. They had to make an intentional uh, exodus, if you will, outside of the people of God into this tabernacle. And here Jesus is is saying, "I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit." that he may be with you forever, that doesn't mean just a long time. That just means that he never leaves you. And this idea that 
that the spirit does not come and go is really, really freeing for us when we start to, to get a renewed mind about who we are in Jesus as new creations who've been filled with his spirit. This, this idea that Jesus, uh, we have to somehow clean ourselves up to get ready for Sunday, or we have to uh, repent before God will come and speak to us. That's true. God does want you to repent, but you don't repent to get forgiven. You repent because you're forgiven. You, you seek the Lord's forgiveness because he's merciful to you. It's not as if you have to uh, wait to look when Moses is going to the tabernacle to worship. You actually have the Holy Spirit with you at all times. When Jesus wasn't just talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit will be here until Jesus returns to the earth and the kingdom is consummate, he, he's talking about a reality, the Holy Spirit's with you forever, moment by moment. The problem is we don't, we don't necessarily know that, and we forget that, and we don't believe that as, as full as we should. But this is the reality for the believer. We are united with Christ. Now, obviously, that it depends on you being a believer, but if you have assurance of faith, you, you will start to, as you read the scriptures, be confirmed more and more that Jesus does not, he doesn't leave you. He, he came and tabernacled among us, but then he sent the Spirit to uh, be in us. Uh, as Paul says, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians. So this idea emerges not in only of the union with Christ, but this theme, the major theme that we've been talking about in this series so far has been the goodness of God. Many people are confused by the Old Testament. They think there's a really wrathful God in the Old Testament, and Jesus shows us a really nice God in the, in the New. And that's just not true at all. Um, God actually is extremely good. We've looked already how some people have a misconception about how in the Old Testament they had to obey the law to get forgiven. And we noticed how Abraham heard God before the law was given. And Galatians, actually, that's the main point of Galatians too, is that Abraham heard God, it was credited to him as righteousness, and the law does not change the way in which God relates to man. God has always related to man on the basis of faith in what God has said. And so this idea of God's goodness, we, we saw how not only did Abraham receive grace before he heard a commandment to go to a particular place, but also the people of God were removed from, ex from Egypt. They were delivered from their oppressors. They were given grace before they received the law at Sinai. And so we, we really need to, as a, as a congregation, develop a working understanding of the fact that God is good both in the Old Testament and New. If we think he's bad in the Old Testament, we'll be discouraged uh, of reading it, and uh, we'll be missing out. So Moses is on this mountain, and he is emboldened. I mean, think about this for a second. Moses has split a river uh, or a sea. He has executed plagues against Egypt. He has gone up against the king of the world at the time, Pharaoh, and uh, demonstrated by throwing his staff down and having his staff absorb the other staffs, uh, which the Egyptians had tried to imitate with their dark arts. I mean, he's been in spiritual warfare. This is like better than Star Wars. And Moses goes and has the audacious thing to say, you know, in the midst of fire, uh, smoke, storms, clouds, thunders, voices, the sound of a trumpet, Moses has the audacity to say to God, 
If I've found favor, then I pray you, show me your glory. Now, what's interesting about this isn't just the audacity, but what God responds with. Exodus 30, 33, 19. And Yahweh said, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord. So in, in 18, Moses asks for glory. Yahweh responds with goodness. And then the next time, he mentions it again in verse 22, and it will come about while my glory is passing by. The revelation of the glory of God, that is how big God is, how great God is, how weighty he is, how holy he is, that revelation goes hand in hand with the working understanding that God is good. That somehow you understand by the Holy Spirit giving life to the word of God that you are uh you stand before a God who wants to forgive, be compassionate, be kind to you. That revelation of his holiness and his goodness need to come one one in one. They're, they're, they're together, and they're not able to, to be separate. And so here, uh, Moses is asking for glory. God responds with goodness and then calls it glory again. And this isn't just a translation thing. They're separate words in the original. This is the Bible's way of saying goodness is equal to, to glory. When, when Yahweh comes and, and Moses says, God, show me your glory, God responds with, I'm going to show you my goodness, and I'm going to declare my name. Well, what's the name of God? We know it's Yahweh, but uh, what is it more than that? It means a, a full description of his ways, his attributes, how he relates to individuals and to people groups. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet he will, know by, uh, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. One of the things to note about this verse is that the word, the guilty, in, in the phrase, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, that word, the guilty, isn't there. So who, who is he not going to leave unpunished? Well, he's going he's gonna to punish Jesus for your sins. That's what it means. Uh, the, the, the translators sometimes put words in there that are, are helpful, but sometimes they also obfuscate and confuse things. He will leave the sin. He will not leave the sin unpunished. He will punish Jesus for, for the believer's sin. In the midst of all of this, getting an understanding that Yahweh is supremely good, that's the point of this passage. And the way in which Moses comes to the revelation of the goodness of God is vital. In verse 20, Yahweh says to, to Moses, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Yet we as believers, we know that we have seen Jesus and in Christ, we have seen the face of God and we're living. This is an amazing mystery, which, you know, can't be fully searched out on our own. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit to illumine it. And because it's talking about Jesus, it's infinite. So, this idea that, that uh, Moses wasn't allowed to see the face of Yahweh, 
but the New Testament overwhelmingly says we have seen Jesus, that is a, that is a great mystery. In John 14, 7, Jesus says to his disciples, if you had known me, you would also have, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip responds with, how Jesus, uh, you know, it's enough for us if you just show us the Father. And Jesus responds with, you've seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's, that's crazy. Uh, if, if you understand that Yahweh wasn't lying when he said, no one can see my face and live. Uh, if you behold Jesus, you are seeing the face of Yahweh. And you're seeing it in such a way that he doesn't break out in wrath against you. That means Jesus is the goodness of God incarnate. He is merciful in the moment. And so if we come into any revelation of who Jesus is, it is only because of the goodness of God. And so Colossians actually confirms this. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus has a body and he resides in heaven. He stands at the right hand of the Father and he, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2 2b through 3, a true Paul is praying for the Colossians that this would come pass for them. He says, I'm praying for you that you would come to a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom all the treasures of wisdom, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where are they hidden? They're hidden in Jesus, in, in his body. They're, Jesus is, and, and th- this may sound weird, but it's, I mean, this is the mystery of the incarnation. This is Orthodox Christianity. Uh, Colossians goes on to say it's not just all the secrets of wisdom and knowledge. They're not just dwelling in Jesus, but it's more than that. Verses 9 and 10, for in him all the fullness of deity, and this is where uh, Paul makes it concrete, that he's saying this is a physical, spiritual, uh, you know, beyond our comprehension reality, when he says, for all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. So Paul goes from describing the, the, the Godhead dwells bodily in Jesus, the fullness of deity is in Jesus' body, and then he goes on to talk about what we normally think is kind of a metaphorical reality, in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. This is an amazing mystery, and... Uh, when we see this kind of stuff, that opens our eyes to the importance of, okay, I need to know everywhere in the scripture where this idea of me being in Jesus or depending on Jesus or resting on Jesus, I want to know what it means. And so the fact that we have seen uh, this idea of the rock before, and we saw two weeks ago how it mentioned Christ, um, but when we come to stand on the rock, or when Yahweh meets us by coming and standing on the rock, that rock is Christ, and it's only in Jesus that we have a relationship with God. Verse 21 of Exodus 33, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. So here Yahweh tells Moses to stand on the rock. But two weeks ago, in the message, uh, The Rock and the Water, we saw in Exodus 17:6 Yahweh stood on the rock at Horeb and also how in 1 Corinthians 10 Paul explicitly says that rock is Christ. So this isn't just uh, a nice poetical thing. 
This is, Paul says that this is the correct interpretation. Uh, in, in light of the revelation of who Jesus was, Paul says that the, the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, these things happened as examples for us, and they ate of the same spiritual food and spiritual drink, and they all got water from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Um, now, here in this, in this passage, Moses is standing on the rock. Uh, we saw in Exodus 17. So, so here in Exodus uh, 33, Yahweh uh, is, is here. There's a rock that is by Yahweh, and, and here he's going to tell Moses to stand on the rock. So Yahweh comes and stands on the rock one time. Moses stands on the rock in this passage. This helps us to, to know that this is, is a full working understanding of what it means for a believer to relate to God. It only takes place through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And in the midst of, of, of saying that, uh, we've been looking at what a mediator is. But it, but it really means he is the only foundation that is possible for Yahweh to speak to man, for man to, to commune and talk to God. It all takes place through the person of Jesus. In the Old Testament, it took place on the promise of his coming. In the New Testament, it takes place on the remembrance of his coming. And you, believer, only have a right and legal standing before Yahweh if you are found resting on the rock. That is, if you have placed your trust upon Jesus, uh, then you have a way to commune with God. Exodus 33:22 and it shall come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. It's not enough to get some pictures uh, from the Old Testament. It's my opinion that if you correctly interpret every verse, it would have some sort of really great application. For example, here in verse 22, we know that the rock is speaking about Jesus, but look what Yahweh is doing. He says to Moses, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Moses isn't finding the rock on his own. He isn't coming to Christ on his own. Yahweh is putting him in the cleft of the rock. Not only that, he's covering him with his hand while his goodness comes by. This is a picture of total grace. This is no effort on Moses' part. In the midst of this beautiful reality of, of, of Jesus being our our rock, we're in him, we reside in him, um, we still have this weight of, of understanding that the law has to be completed. And we're in Jesus, and we rest on his work. But as soon as Yahweh gives to Moses the, the, the declaration of his name, he then goes on to reestablish the covenant with his people. Um, in verse one of Exodus 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourselves uh, two stone tablets like the former ones. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. Before Moses had come down with the original copy of the Ten Commandments or the, the law, um, he, which was written by the finger of God, he, he comes down and he shows up uh, and there's this sound of, of dancing um, in the in the in the camp, and the people of Israel had convinced Aaron. We we remember last week how it was such an audacious audacious thing that they did. 
because the gold which they used to make the molten calf, that gold was given to them by Yahweh as a way to uh, glorify them as they left Egypt. And so Yahweh had plundered and Israel had plundered the Egyptians, and they take what God gave to them, the grace that God gave to them, and they used it as a license for sin. And so this this happens, and Moses comes down with the, the law in his hand, and he breaks the tablets. Why did he break the tablets? Well, the people of Israel had already broken the tablets. They had just broken what the tablets had said, and now Moses breaks what the tablets were written on, or the, the law was written on. And so he comes back and has this revelation of the goodness of God, and yet Yahweh still establishes the covenant with his people. The people of Israel had already broken God's law before they had received it. In the same way, Paul in Romans 1 talks about how even the Gentiles break God's law. Uh, And even though they don't have a copy of the law that the Israelites have, Paul argues that the, the eternal attributes and God's divine nature are plainly seen in the created order. And yet these evil men, uh, most of us here were, were uh, Gentiles, most of us weren't Jewish, we and our ancestors made idols uh, out of the form of a man and the form of a, of a bird or a form of an animal. We made idols because we have suppressed the truth and run away from the revelation of who God is. So both Jew and Gentile need Christ. And in the midst of this, God establishes his people and and brings them to a revelation of his goodness, yet says, uh, I want you to still follow me, and I want you to still be my people. Moses is standing there, Exodus 34, 9. He said, if I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst Remember, Yahweh couldn't be in the midst of his people or he was gonna, his holiness was going to break out. So, so Moses is asking, let the Lord go along and be in our midst, even though the people are, ob- are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Moses knows that people are going to sin again. And so he asks Yahweh, um, reside among us and forgive our iniquity. And, and Yahweh says, okay, let's do it. At the end of our selected passage here, though, he says, you shall make for yourself no molten gods. This idea that we, as believers, New Testament reality, we're not forming tiny idols made of metal, but we are forming idols of our own will, our own sin. And while we know who Christ is, and we're we're even assured to some degree of being in Christ, we know that we need someone to come and live an idolless life. And that person who comes and does that on our behalf, not only doing it for our account, but also for our example and enabling us to live an idolless life, that person is Jesus. We cannot complete Yahweh's command and we need someone to do it. And that person who does it for us is Jesus. So with that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that we would see every element of the gospel, even in places that we don't think it shows up. God, we ask you that you would give us a love for your word, that we would appreciate your word and hide it in our hearts, that we would not sin against you. God, I ask that you would open our eyes to the beautiful things in your scripture, that like David prayed, that you would open our eyes to wonderful things. 
God, I ask you that this week you would put a hunger in, in us, that we would become bored with the elemental things of this life, the things of, of social networking and um, television and uh, wasting time and, and being lazy. God, I pray that in moments this week, you would, by your spirit, come and draw us to find you in Exodus, to find you in Leviticus. And I, I ask you, Lord, for my life, that you would just uh, give me a hunger, give me a greater desire for your word. Let me see Jesus and savor him in every verse. In Jesus' name, amen.